Hi, everyone. This is a continuation of our series, uh, Sin and Salvation by Leslie Newbigin. So we'll be focusing on chapter six, which is the work of the Savior. So last chapter, we were uh, discussing on the preparation of salvation. Uh, and we, through chapters one and four, talked about the condition of sin um, in this world. And from five onwards, is talking about um, the works of salvation through Christ. So last chapter, we were talking about how we were continuing this idea of man being in a state of contradiction. And the, there were certain concepts in the Old Testament, the prophet, the priest, the king, and how each word means in which man was trying to achieve salvation, but only showed the deepness that man was in how deep man was in sin. Um, so this chapter, we're going to be focusing on the work of the Savior. So, uh, Brian, do you mind just giving a summary of this chapter? Yeah. Um, in our youth movement, we've talked a lot about the meaning of the gospel, right? The gospel is the good news that in Jesus Christ, uh, God has reconciled the world to himself, that God is forgiving sins, that God is renewing creation, There, that Jesus is Lord. There are a lot of different ways in which you can summarize the gospel neatly in like a, a small sentence. But this chapter really gets into how, right? Like, okay, God is reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ. How did he do that? That's that's really the focus of this chapter. And um, Newbegin's answer to that how centers on the cross, centers on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and centers on unpacking... and. So the image of the cross is central, but in order to really understand that, we need to unpack a lot of the metaphors that are used in the New Testament to describe the work of the cross. So that's what this chapter is really all about. Um, the division of the chapter, if you if you look through it, it's it's a dense chapter, but the way the chapter is kind of divided, it starts off by really centering in on John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life. Uh, and what Newbegin wants to do there is really kind of break that verse up into different parts so that we can understand who salvation comes from, why salvation was necessary, what was motivating God for salvation. Um, and I, th I think that's a great way to introduce us into the meaning of salvation and really like understand what salvation is, what its purpose is. Then Newbegin moves on to Jesus's own teaching about his death. Uh, what's interesting about that is Newbegin makes clear it's a teaching that the apostles could not understand until the resurrection fully. And so for us, as we look at Jesus's teaching about his own his own death, we were able to grasp a fuller understanding of what he was trying to get across to his disciples uh, because we are looking at it from the other side of the resurrection. Uh, so we can probably go into that a lot more during the question time. Um, and then after that, Newbegin turns to uh, the symbols that the church has used to understand the cross. So the cross is a revelation of God's love. The cross is judgment on sin. The cross is a ransom. That's a huge theme in the New Testament. Uh, the cross is a sacrifice. The cross is a victory over the forces of 
hell and death, you know, the devil. Uh, and finally, like, the cross is the, the decisive launching point for new creation in Jesus's resurrection and ascension. So again, we can unpack that a lot more during the course of our conversation, but that's kind of a, a survey of how this chapter works. So that first point, Brian, you talked about is how uh, New Begin starts off or introduces this chapter with the verse John 3.16. And he decomposes it in different parts um, for God loving the world, giving his only begotten son. Um, and, you know, whoever believes in him shall not perish, perish but have eternal life. And uh, New Begin uh, breaks up these different parts. Do you mind kind of expanding on those different parts and why they're so meaningful then to later go into the significance of Jesus' death? Yeah. So there are five parts that New Begin basically breaks that verse into. And I, I can spend some time, you know, going over each of those points. So the first point is the author of salvation is God. The second point is that the motivation of salvation is God's love for the world. The third point is that the means of salvation is God's giving of his only begotten son. The fourth point of uh, New Begin's making here is the purpose of salvation is the gift of everlasting life. And the fifth point is that we take hold of that salvation. We appropriate that salvation to ourselves through faith. Right. So let me maybe just say a little bit more about each of those points. And you can see how those points are very clearly like rooted in the verse. It's just kind of taking each chunk of it. It's a it's a really cool approach New Begin takes here. So the first point, the author of salvation is God. This is really important because New Begin has laid the foundation in prior chapters that because sin has corrupted the very center of man's being and will, uh, human beings' efforts to be free from sin are always infected by sin and drive us deeper into sin. So the example we saw was uh, the example of the people of Israel. And the ultimate example of that in previous chapters we've talked about already is the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees are so motivated to get Israel into obedience of the law, to get out of sin, to reestablish relationship with God. But they are the ones who end up killing God. <laughs> they, they commit in that zeal, they end up committing the ultimate sin. And, and that is not just an indictment of the Pharisees. The point of that story, the point of that happening in human history is to be an example to all of us that if we try to extricate ourselves from sin and reestablish relationship with God through our own efforts, that road will always lead to the violence and self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Uh, and so the author of salvation has to be God. Only God can reestablish relationship with us. We can't do it on our own. Uh, the second point is that the motivation of salvation is God's love for the world. This, this I think, really needs to be emphasized in our world because I think there's a common understanding or a common misunderstanding, a common misconception, especially in evangelical American circles, where God, God did not save out of love for the world. It's more the father is set against the son, right? Where Christ's self-sacrifice turns away a God who hates us. And so instead of taking out his wrath on us, he takes out his wrath on Jesus. And that displacement of wrath 
is what saves us. And so the motivation for salvation is not God's love for the world, it's God's hatred of the world. Uh, now, I want to be very clear, and Newbie goes into this later, there is a place for wrath, and there is a place for sacrifice, and there is a place for the idea that Christ has been a sacrifice for us. But I think that distortion that sets the Father against, against the Son is really clarified when you understand the motivation of salvation is God's great love for the world, his desire to redeem the world, to buy the world back. Um, the, the third point is the means of salvation. Um, Newbegin has kind of established this uh, before. God, God needs to uh, send his son to us in order to establish a personal relationship with him. Because what, what salvation is, is not just us avoiding the consequences of wrath or hell or death. What salvation is, and, and, and Newbegin laid the groundwork for this in prior chapters, is salvation is the reestablishment of a relationship of love between God and us. And so that is why the Son is the is God taking on human form to be in solidarity with us and to represent us before the Father, maintain that perfect relationship of love in his human life as Jesus Christ. And there and therefore by relationship with Jesus we now enjoy the same perfect relationship with the Father. I know that's a little bit of a complicated argument, but that is the means of salvation. It is solidarity with Jesus, not a solidarity necessarily that in the first instance we choose. It's a, it's a solidarity that in the first instance Jesus chooses in the incarnation and in going to the cross. Uh, and that solidarity is the mechanism by which we get to reestablish this full relationship of love with the Father. Um, and if that's not clear, Benoit, please like ask me about that so I can go into that a little bit more. Um, but that that really is like the entire purpose of Jesus' incarnation, his perfect life, his teaching, his, um, his going to the cross and suffering and death, his descent into hell, his resurrection and his ascension, and one day his second coming, is to establish the fullness of that relationship for us. Then we go to the fourth point. The purpose of salvation is the gift of everlasting life. Um, the world separated from God is hurtling towards destruction and death, right? Cut off from the source of light and life. The consequence is your fragmentation, your destruction, and eventually your annihilation, your ceasing to be. Uh, but God does not desire this for his salvation. And so that is why what everything he is doing to reestablish this relationship of love would lead to a reestablishment of life. So in the heart of death, the the eternal principle of life, Jesus Christ, the son of God, is it's it's almost like going into the matrix. It's like uh, the, the, the eternal principle of life is going into the very heart of death so that now death is kind of eaten up from the inside by life. So the purpose of everything God is doing is to lead us to new creation, to everlasting 
creation that is in union with God. Um, and then the final point is that we take hold of the salvation through faith. Even though in the first instance, the solidarity Christ establishes is one that he does on his own initiative, at the end of the day, in order to participate in that solidarity and enjoy the benefits of that solidarity, I have to grasp what Christ has done. And the hand that grasps what Christ has done is my faith. So th that's what Nubian kind of explores during that portion of the chapter. Great. So I'm sure these points are going to be expanded more as we talk about Jesus' death and the meaning of that as well. So the next thing I would like you to expand upon is um, Jesus' own teaching about his death. Um, and Newbigin goes into much detail of how Jesus spoke about it, um, being the will of the Father, um, how it was God's judgment on the world, and being a ransom sacrifice, all these different um, concepts. So if you'd mind kind of going into detail, each of these different things of what yeah. Jesus was teaching about. Yeah, for sure. Um, Jesus, in his teaching about his death, he makes clear that the center ground for understanding his entire life and his entire mission is the cross. Uh, and I think Newbegin at the outset makes clear that at the end of the day, the cross is a mystery that we will never fully grasp because we are talking about the death of God. <laughs> and so uh, that is a mind-blowing concept if you really try to understand that. And so we have all these theories, we, all, we have all these pictures, we have all these symbols, paradigms that can help us approach understanding the cross. Uh, the, the fancy theological term for it is atonement, right? Atonement is just oh, another way of saying reconciliation, oneness at one mint, that's literally what it means. So atonement is reconciliation. And so there are a lot of atonement theories. How does the cross accomplish reconciliation? I think Newbegin is very wise in making clear that there is no one atonement theory that we need, that the New Testament talks about Jesus's work of reconciliation at the cross in multiple ways, and that we need all of these theories, all of these pictures, all of these symbols uh, to, to kind of like come around and look at the the cross from different angles. Uh, there's a There's an old metaphor that looking at the cross is like looking at a diamond and you need to look at, you need to turn the diamond, look at it from different angles to really admire and see all the facets of the diamond. That's the way the cross is. And so we need to look at it from different angles. Uh, I think the problem in the church sometimes has been that uh, different corners of the church want to emphasize one atonement theory to the exclusion of all others. And that ends up leading to a distortion of an understanding of what Jesus has done on the cross. For example, we already talked about this earlier, one very prominent atonement theory in American evangelicalism is penal, substi uh, penal substitution. Basically, the idea that on the cross, Jesus Christ was punished by God for our sins on our behalf. I wanna be very clear, that theme is in the Bible. That theme is biblical, it's in the New Testament. But if you don't hold that theme, in combination with the themes of ransom, with the themes of sacrifice, with the themes of victory over the over death and the devil, then that 
picture becomes very distorted and you end up with the with the misstatement of what God is like and you set the father against the son. So I'm going into this in, in some detail to sort of like let you know why this is important that we look at the atonement and we look at the, Jesus's work on the cross from multiple different angles. So in this first section, like you said, Benoit, New Begin is looking first just at what Jesus himself said about his death. What did Jesus himself say about what his death is, is like and why it's needed? So first, I'll, let me summarize the, the nine ways, the nine points. Uh, it's a lot that uh, Jesus talked about his death. He says, first, his death is necessary. Second, his death is the will of the Father. Third, his death arises from his solidarity with sinners. We already talked about that a little bit. Uh, fourth, his death is God's judgment of the world. Fifth, his death is a ransom for sin. Sixth, his death is a sacrifice. Seventh, his death is the means of life. Eighth, his death is not an isolated event, but others are to follow and share in it. It's a it's an invitation to a way. Uh, it's an example. Uh, and ninth, his is supposed to be central to his mission and can only be properly understood in light of the resurrection. So those are the nine things Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels, says about his death himself. I know that's a lot, so I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to go really in depth in each of these points. I encourage you to read the, the book, but let me just kind of touch on each of these points a little bit more. Um, first, at the begin, even at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus expected his death, right? We know that from the Gospel of John when we read the story of the miracle at the wedding of Cana, right? When Jesus tells his, his mother, woman, my hour has not come, uh, he's thinking about the moment of his death. Later on, there, in, early on in his ministry, he talks about his ministry being like a bridal party. And he, the Messiah, is a bridegroom, and his coming brings joy. But Jesus makes clear there will be a time when the bridegroom must be taken away. The cross is never a plan B for Jesus. The cross is always plan A. He knows that is where his ministry will lead. So he knows that his death is necessary. After Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, Jesus makes clear to the disciples that he, he must suffer and die. And it's at that point that he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And the meaning of that is Jerusalem is the place where all the prophets of God that have called for renewal have met their end, their death. And so he knows he is, he is continuing in that tradition. He must go to Jerusalem to die. So that's the first point. His death is necessary. Second, he knows his death is the will of the Father. He does not just accept his death as inevitable given the forces that are set against him. He sees his death as the will of his Father and specifically in uh, the allusions that Jesus uses to Isaiah and the story of the suffering servant. So if you're familiar with the songs of the servant, you know that Jesus is patterning his ministry self-consciously on that image of the suffering servant because he sees himself to be that suffering servant. And so he, he believes that his suffering and death is not just because 
the Jewish leaders are set against him because the Roman Empire might be threatened by him. He doesn't just see it as like a political consequence. He understands this to be the will of the Father for him. Uh, and the Garden of Gethsemane prayer, I think, makes this the most clear. Because in that prayer, he's, he knows that this cup ultimately is coming from the Father. And that the Father has the, has the power and the authority to take that cup away from him or to make him drink that cup. And the reason why that, that prayer is so beautiful is that in that moment, Jesus is reversing the decision of Adam in the garden. Where Adam disobeyed the will of the Father in the garden, Jesus submits to the will of the Father in the garden. So his death is the will of the Father. The third point is his death arises from his solidarity with sinners, his identification of himself with sinners. Uh, we see this... I think most clearly in the motif of baptism that's developed in the Gospels, uh, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. He is baptizing people for repentance and remission of sins. Uh, Jesus has no personal sin. His relationship to the Father is totally perfect. And yet, Jesus chooses to be plunged into the waters of the Jordan by John the Baptist as an act of solidarity with the men and women of Israel who are coming for repentance. And it's at that moment of solidarity that the father says, I'm pleased with you, right? Like it's like the father saying, giving divine assurance. This is your call, Jesus. And the spirit is given to Jesus uh, in, in sort of a fresh way to mark the beginning of his ministry. And over and over again in the, in the gospels, the language used of Jesus going to the cross is the language of him completing his baptism. I'm completing my baptism by going to the cross. And we see this, I think, very beautifully in the cry of dereliction upon the cross. If you guys are familiar with that, that's when Jesus utters in you know, total despair. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While he's between two thieves, like a common criminal, subject to the most cruel form of death that like humankind has ever devised, actually. I mean, there's a reason why the word for uh, ultimate pain is excruciating, right? At the, at the center of it is cruce, because there's an acknowledgement. Crucifixion is the most painful and shameful way to die. And so in doing that, Jesus is identifying not only with mankind in their repentance he's identifying with mankind in its utter lostness its utter sense of abandonment from any kind of hope he is uh you know john calvin talks about this as this is christ's descent into hell you know the the anglican and orthodox uh and catholics have a teaching that christ descended into hell and i believe that teaching but i think calvin is also right to say that on the cross Christ experienced hell in that moment. He experienced separation. And, and, to, and there, there's a lot of mystery in that too. Like, how can you say that Christ, who is God, experienced separation from God? There's a mystery there. And yet, that, the fact that he did, I think, communicates to us the depth of his solidarity with us. Fourth, Jesus teaches that his death is God's judgment of the world. Uh, this is clear in Mark chapter 12, when Jesus talks about the parable of the Lord's vineyard. 
So Jesus here is picking up on a very famous image of Israel as God's vineyard that he had planted to bring forth fruit. And but but this is a story that actually comes up. This is an image uh, that comes up repeatedly in the Old Testament in the prophets. Uh, but Jesus is retelling the story with like kind of a twist. So now the owner of the vineyard, who is God, is sending servants to collect his fruit, which is his due. Uh, the fruit of justice, the fruit of holiness, the fruit of worship. Uh, but each of those servants, who are the prophets of Israel, are refused and humiliated by the tenants in the vineyard. The, those are the leaders of Israel. Then the owner finally sends his own son, which is basically a way of sending himself, because he, he thinks to himself, uh, surely they will listen to my son. If my son comes, they will respect and they will give the fruit that is due. And the son is killed in Mark chapter 12 in, in Jesus's story. The son who goes to the vineyard is killed by the tenants of the vineyard. And the question then is, what will the Lord of the vineyard do in response to that? And I think the answer is obvious. Uh, if Jesus, the son of God, the final word of God to men is rejected, then men and women will bring down upon themselves God's judgment because God is concerned to collect fruit from mankind. He, he has created mankind, humankind, not just Israel. He created Israel with a purpose, but Israel is a microcosm. It's a representation of humankind itself. And God has created humankind with a purpose to do justice, to worship, to be a people of true worship. And if they are not offering that true worship and that true justice, then God's wrath will come upon humankind. And so his death is God's judgment upon the world. Fifth, Jesus's death is a ransom. Jesus has come, uh, you know, Jesus, there's the, that famous phrase, I've come not to serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Uh, Psalm 49 in the Old Testament makes clear that no man can pay the ransom for his brother. And yet Jesus is kind of contradicting that. He's saying this is exactly what he's come to do. What no other person can do, he is doing. He's paying the ransom on behalf of another. Uh, and he is not doing it... I, I, think, I think the way that we can reconcile those two thoughts, that you can't pay, make a payment for someone else, and yet Jesus is doing that, is that Jesus is not making the payment for someone as if he was outside their situation. He is taking their place. He, that's, that's the meaning of this solidarity. That's why that concept of solidarity is very important. Jesus is taking the place of the person who needs to pay. Um, and so the, the word ransom here is keying into the idea of propitiation, an Old Testament idea that uh, of sacrifice, uh, of a payment given to appease God's wrath. Jesus never explains honestly, like how his death is a propitiation or how that works. Um, you know, there, the early church has a lot of thoughts on that. The Protestants have a lot of thoughts on that. Modern evangelicals have a lot of thoughts on that. But Jesus never specifies how exactly all of that works. But he does clearly tell us that he has come to give his life in place of the lives of men and women that are already forfeit. He's making a payment on their behalf and in their place. Sixth, Jesus says that his death is a sacrifice. Uh, that's the meaning of what 
that's what Jesus is getting at when he says this is the blood of the new covenant at the last supper. He's offering an interpretation of his coming death. Uh, and and that's, that's an allusion to when God created a covenant with Israel. There was a sacrifice that was offered. The blood of the oxen was sprinkled on the altar and the people. And afterwards, the, the people of Israel have this vision of a fellowship meal with God, of eating and drinking with God. So... The Old Covenant was instituted with this inaugural sacrifice and a fellowship meal. And Jesus' words are indicating that his blood, of his, his blood that is shed for the world, is the inaugural sacrifice that is going to lead to a fellowship meal of peace and, and, and new relationship between God and human beings in the New Covenant. Again, how does that work? What's the mechanism by that works? That's not explained. Jesus doesn't go into all of that. But he does say this is the purpose of his death. It is to be a sacrifice that accomplishes the renewal of this relationship. Seventh, his, his death is the means of life to the world. Uh, whereas before, you know, in the sixth point, we were talking about blood. And, and that kind of reminds us of the wine in communion. Here, Jesus talks about the bread. And he talks about, uh, that kind of reminds us of the bread of communion, right? In John chapter 6, Jesus identifies himself as the bread from heaven. The bread which I give is my flesh for the life of the world. Uh, over and over again, he talks about his death as a means of bringing life. John chapter 10, you know, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. John chapter 12, the kernel of wheat that must die to bring forth new life. Uh, what Jesus is saying is that his death is going to be the means of new life for the entire world. His death is accomplishing a kind of birth for the world. Uh, eighth, his death is not an isolated event, but others are supposed to follow it and share in it. As soon as Jesus starts talking about his death in the Gospel of Mark, he begins telling his disciples that they are, they must take up their cross and follow him. They are to share in his death. Uh, this, we're, we're focusing on Jesus's own teaching about his death, but I think it's interesting that Paul, in several of his letters, talks about his sufferings as completing the death of the Messiah. Not just participating in it, but completing the, the sufferings and death of the Messiah. So there's a sense in which uh, Jesus is this prime example that we are meant to follow as well. Uh, that this is not just something, Jesus' death is not just something that we watch or like are spectators to. Those of us who uh, belong to Jesus share in that death. And we don't just share in it by coming to communion or sacramentally, right? Uh, we don't just share in it in experiencing the benefits of salvation. We share in it in actual bodily pain, <laughs> like in suffering, we are going to share in it. In life experiences, we are going to share in it. We, we will share in his death. Ultimately, for some, it will mean sharing it in martyrdom. And that's what he tells Peter at the end of his life, right? He says, at the end of your life, someone is going to take you by the hand to a place you do not want to go. And, you know, this is at the end of the Gospel of John. John, in commentating on Jesus's remarks to Peter, makes clear he said this to indicate to Peter the manner of death in which he would die. Peter dies as a martyr for Christ, and Peter is preeminent among the disciples. So if we are to be Jesus' disciples, that means that we will participate in his death. 
And then finally, Jesus' teaching shows that his death is central to his mission, but can only be understood after the resurrection and the ascension. And, and this is something that we need to, I think, always keep together in our minds, too. I think sometimes we can talk about the crucifixion, we can talk about the atonement, and not connect it to Jesus's resurrection, which is the new life, not connect it to Jesus's ascension, which is his, his establishment of his reign and rule over new creation, and not connect it to the Pentecost, which is the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church. All of these things are connected. The cross is central, but all of these things are connected. So one thing I guess I wanted to comment or add and this goes in conjunction to what you said in the beginning of how all of these different teachings there isn't one common teaching but there's multiple there's it's multi-dimensional and it's almost to uh it almost leads us to a point of that jesus death we partly know but it's also partly a mystery like we yeah. understand it through his teachings and through these aspects but at the same exact time, it is also so highly dimensional that it's very difficult for us to fully um, understand. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think one thing we should reflect on about that is why would God do it that way? And I think one reason why God would do it that way, why, where he would give us all these different ways uh, to think about the atonement the multi-dimensionality of the atonement, and yet at the same time, it's a mystery we can never fully grasp, is that it teaches us our our proper posture towards God. Like, why would he do that? He would he, he wants to disciple us into a certain way of relating to him, I think. And part of the problem with, like, trying to create a theory that explains everything is that your posture towards that idea becomes one of mastery right? I have mastered this concept. There's nothing more that needs to be explained. I think that's not the relationship God wants us to have with him. It's not one of mastering a concept. What God is inviting us into is a perpetual and eternal contemplation and enjoyment of him. And to do that, you need, there needs to be, there needs to be an aspect of frankly, infinity, <laughs> there needs to be an aspect of mystery, like this sense that there is something about you I will never fully understand, but I can always know more about it, right? Like I can always come closer to it. I think, you know, that's not to be overly mushy or romantic, but there's there's an element of that in love. You know, when you really love someone, like I love my wife, there's an element about the other person that is always a mystery, no matter how much you know that person. When you start to assume, like, I know everything about you, I have you figured out, I have mastered the concept of you, that's when a lot of the love fades. And so, and part of the way of keeping love fresh is acknowledging that the other person is a person and has depths that you will never conquer, you will never master, but where you are invited to, to know more and more. And I think when we when we adopt that posture towards God, um, God becomes much more beautiful towards us. And I think that's the way that because that is an that is an attribute of God, His infinity, His glory, His majesty, which can never be uh, mastered by human minds. 
because that's an element of God, that has to be an element of the death of God. That's beautifully put, Brian. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. So the next thing um, New Begin talks about is uh, these certain concepts or symbols that's connected to the cross. Um, God's love, judgment, ransom. So do you mind kind of just breaking down these different concepts we get um, with the cross? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, it's not as many. Uh, it's it's six. It's not nine, but mm. it is a lot. A lot of it is repetition of Jesus's own teaching, right? Because the symbols the church uses are obviously going to borrow from the way Jesus himself spoke about uh, the cross. But these are the six main, I guess what we would say in modern terms, these are the six main atonement theories. Uh, the first is the cross is a revelation of God's love. The second is the cross is God's judgment on human sin. The third is the God, uh, the cross is a ransom. The fourth is the cross is a sacrifice. The fifth is the cross is a victory over death, sin, and the devil. And the fifth is uh, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus is central to understanding the cross, that the cross leads to uh, the resurrection, new life, and ascension. The kingdom of God. Um, so yeah, those are those are the six main symbols. Um, I guess to just maybe touch on these a little bit. The first is the cross as a revelation of God's love. Uh, again, we've we've talked about this before, but to I think I think the way the church emphasizes it is like in in evangelical terms look at how much God loves you, that he would die for you. It is a demonstration of God's commitment to you. You know, uh, Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that, than that he would lay down his life for his friends. Um, it is the greatest act of love is to sacrifice your life uh, for the sake of the one you love. And God shows that his love goes there, right? He shows that he is willing to die for us. The second is the, the judgment. Paul is very clear. He became sin who knew no sin that we may be um, yeah, the righteousness of God. Uh, I think in Romans, Paul writes uh, that sin is condemned in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so this is that penal substitutionary atonement uh, motif, emphasis. It's there, you know? God has condemned sin in Jesus Christ. He has he done so, and he has done so in a way where he does not need to destroy the world. Um, and, and that motif, I think, is there. That is a very key part of um, Jesus' death. There's also the idea of Jesus as a ransom. Um, this is referred to uh, many times, especially in Paul's letters, but also in Peter's letters, as redemption. Right. The idea of redemption is a purchase of a people like so when you would go into the slave market, if you've uh, bought a slave and then freed them, you know, you're purchasing them so that you can set them free. That is what redemption is. And so God in Jesus Christ is purchasing humankind in order to set them free from sin. Now, the early church struggled with this concept because it leads you to this question, 
if God is purchasing humankind, who is God purchasing humankind from? Right. Like there are there are all kinds. Again, this is how if you just emphasize one of these theories and push it to its limit, it leads to distortions because what the church, the early church kind of came to a conclusion was, well, that means that he had to purchase uh, humankind from the devil. Um, I think I think there's some there's some merit to that. You know, like there is a strong sense throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that this world is captive, right? That it is held prisoner to certain elemental spirits, to certain um, evil principalities and powers that are aligned with death and destruction. Uh, and also, you know, Paul talks about the, the prince of the spirit of the air. Um, he talks about Satan. And so there's there is this sense that this world is captive and that there is a payment that is made to to win back his uh, God's people. I think C.S. Lewis uh, illustrates this motif beautifully in the story of Aslan, right? Aslan dies as a payment to buy back Edmund, if you know the story of the Chronicles of Narnia. Spoiler alert, but if you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia, shame on you. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, he, he's, he, he's, he's illustrating this concept of ransom, this concept of buying mankind back. Uh, I, I think we shouldn't be too bothered by that idea. I think uh, there are some modern evangelicals who really don't like this idea of ransom because it makes it seem like God is subject to the devil. Um, I don't think we need to go there. God is sovereign over all things. And yet in his wisdom, he has ordered the world in such a way that, you know, there is this real competition uh, war going on, spiritual war going on between God and between the forces of darkness. And so and so that actually leads us to, to the fifth one. I'll skip ahead to the fifth one, which is the death of Jesus as a victory over sin, death, and the devil. How is it a victory? It is a victory because over and over again, the devil has been attempting to divert Jesus from going to the cross, right? Jesus Christ is God. He with a, you know, like a whisper, with a snap of his fingers, can command a whole host of angels to fight on his behalf. Uh, and over and over again, the devil is attempting to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. Jesus, in going to the cross and in staying on the cross uh, until his final breath, is reversing the sin of Adam. Adam was seduced Adam and Eve were seduced by the lies of the devil, the whispers of the devil. Jesus's death is a victory over the devil because he totally resists all of those temptations and goes to death trusting that the that his relationship with the Father is so in inviolable uh, that it can't be violated that um, that he can surrender his spirit to the Father and that act of surrender will be honored. So it is a victory over, over the devil. The death of Jesus is a sacrifice that institutes a new covenant. We already covered that before. Um, it, it reestablishes fellowship with God. Sacrificial meals in the Old Testament, the purpose of them, were so that human beings could not just cognitively, but experientially establish and enjoy fellowship with God. So if you know the way sacrifices worked, they were basically a, a huge barbecue. 
right? Like what you would do is you would, you would put a sacrifice on the altar, a portion of it would go up, uh, you know, during the wilderness, there was the kind of cloud of glory that was following Israel. It would be over hovering over the altar. So a portion of the sacrifice would be like burnt up and would ascend into the cloud. It's symbolizing God enjoying the sacrifice, like he's eating the meal. A portion of it would be eaten by the priests and a portion of it would be eaten by the people. And so it's this, I, you're having a barbecue with God. You're having a fellowship meal with God. Jesus's death is now experientially appropriated for us through Holy Communion, right? The death of Jesus is a sacrifice that we now appropriate. We don't repeat it. Jesus's death is once for all, and yet we can experience it. We can, we can appropriate it in our present through Holy Communion. That's why communion is important. And finally, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The, the church teaches that the death of Jesus is not this shameful defeat. Uh, it's not just exposing the evil in human hearts. The death of Jesus is this victory that we talked about that leads to new life, life that can never be swallowed up by death. It's this death that accomplishes and leads to the establishment of the kingdom of God. Um, and so th those are the different ways in which uh, the church has talked about these atonement theories. Great. So let's talk about um, some takeaways we can get from this chapter. What are some applications um, from this chapter we can use into our lives, into our understanding of Christ's work on the cross? Yeah. I think the first takeaway is let's move away from this distortion that Jesus loves us, but God doesn't, that God is this distant, angry judge. Um, the first takeaway from this chapter, I think Newbegin makes so clear by referring to so many biblical passages, is that the cross is a united work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is fundamentally an act of love. It is an act of love and a desire for reconciliation, a desire for continued fellowship, and, and a desire for life for creation and for humankind. And so I think that's just the most important takeaway. I think there's there's a lot, in talking to a lot of people, I think people are like, you know, just people on the street, you know, they're just, they're just sort of like, I'm cool with Jesus, but I'm not cool with God the Father, right? God the Father is this distant, angry judge who is just angry all the time. But oh, then here comes Jesus being like, hey dad, don't, don't punish them, take it out on me instead. Uh, oh, okay, I'll take it out on you instead. I guess everyone else is fine. That is a distortion of understanding the cross. Uh, that, again, that theme of penal substitutionary atonement is there, but it is not the only way of understanding the cross. And if, it is, if you make it the only way, you will really misunderstand God's heart towards humankind. The second thing I think is, it goes back to that earlier discussion we had on the proper posture towards God. These are not things that we learn so that we can master the concepts. These are things that we learn so that we can continually reflect on them and, and by reflecting on them, grow closer and closer to God's heart. And, closer and closer in fellowship with God. I, I think a lot of times, in my experience, the motivation for a lot of people to, to study atonement theory is so that they can be better arguers than others. 
especially on the internet. You, you will have very passionate defenders of what's called Christus Victor, or the idea that the cross is a victory over sin, death, and the devil, versus uh, those who talk about the cross as an example, right? And those who talk about the cross as penal substitutionary atonement. Those are some of the three most common atonement theories that are out there in the church. And there are some people who are very like factional about these different views and who argue against one another and, and try to marshal scriptural support and church history support for their position. Uh, don't approach this chapter in that way, as if you're trying to win it. I think that totally ignores the purpose for which the cross is meant, which is to bring us together in fellowship with God's love. And, and so that is why this, the cross fundamentally will always remain a mystery, because we will never be able to get our hands around it in such a way that we can control it. We are always subject to it and searching deeper to it so that we might arrive at a, at a closer union with God. What about you, Benoit? What are some takeaways for you? Yeah, um, for me, and I think it was articulated through your deconstruction of this chapter, is that there is more and more different aspects of Christ's work on the cross that needs to be understood. Um, there's no mastery in it of understanding um understanding the fullness of the christian faith and for me and i think for others as well is that whenever you're reaching a point of feeling like you have some grand theory or having some understanding of having some mastery or feeling a confidence of no this is the way it is or so fixated on a certain aspect um is probably the time when you need to understand these other dimensions these other aspects of yeah. christ's work and um, and how it affects us in these different angles. Yeah. And I think the temptation there too is when you start feeling like you're approaching mastery, then you get bored and you want to move on to something else. And the cross is the kind of topic that you never move on to something else. It must always remain central to our understanding of Jesus and God and Christianity. Yeah, thank you, Brian. It's been a great conversation, and we'll continue this as we discuss uh, Chapter 7 um, in the next episode.